Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also the leader of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. Election seasons in India, the Indian news portal The Wire wrote recently, largely follow the same format. First, political parties come out with the candidates list. Then there's a high voltage poll campaigning, including big promises, mudslinging rivals, massive rallies, and a dizzying display of money and muscle power to woo voters and form government. The past few months have indeed been election season in India. And in this episode, we zoom in on the five assembly elections that were recently concluded in the states of Uttar Pradesh, Uttarakhand, Goa, Manipur, and the Punjab. And we analyze the results and its implications for national politics. Now, these five elections are state elections, but nonetheless, many see them as a midterm evaluation of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist government, led by the Bharatiya Janta Party, or the BJP. To shed some light on these elections and their implications, I have with me a panel of five scholars of Indian politics and democracy, who all closely followed the campaigns over the last many months, and not least the counting of the votes that happened on the 10th of March. With me is Ariel Drood, Professor of South Asia Studies at the University of Oslo, Guro Samuelsen, postdoctoral fellow at MF Norwegian School of Theology, Religion and Society, which is part of the Mythopolitics in South Asia project. Also here is Rahul Ranjan, postdoctoral fellow at Oslo Metropolitan University, where he is part of the Riverine Rights project. Edward Moon Little, a candidate in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at the Highland Institute. And last but not least, Shreya Sinha, lecturer in international development at the University of Reading. Welcome to all of you. So let's start with the big picture. Ariel Drood, the votes in all five states have now been counted. In your view, what are the the three most important take-home messages from this election? Well, thank you, Kenneth. The main thing is, of course, that the BJP, the ruling party, Modi's party, has won four out of five states with you know, excellent results. Any party leader would be very happy about that. And in particular, because they've won the largest state of all states, uh, Uttar Pradesh, after a lot of controversies and with a highly controversial chief minister, um, which sort of puts to shame all the criticism of the chief minister and of Modi of playing on a very simple Hindutva card, Hindu nationalist card, but, uh, but you know, with great success. And I think this is a boost. This is a tremendous boost for the BJP, the ruling party, heading towards the next national election. They seem invincible quite clearly invincible. I think it's quite fair to assume that we are heading towards another period with Narendra Modi as Prime Minister of India. So the second takeaway is, of course, that the 
the most famous but no longer very large political opponent of Narendra Modi and BJP, the Congress under the leadership of the Gandhi Nehru family, did very badly, very badly indeed, losing all over the place. And uh, very serious questions have now uh, been raised by prominent, more prominent than previously, leaders of the Congress party about its way forward and how to how to deal with what is basically a very weak position. The third takeaway would be that I think it's quite interesting that there are certain states in which the BJP, the ruling national party, doesn't seem to get much leeway. In this case, in this round of elections, Punjab. In the Punjab, the BJP doesn't really have a whole lot of traction. Last year, they lost resoundingly in West Bengal. Previously, it's been shown that they have very limited entry into certain states in the south, in particular Kerala and Tamil Nadu. So it's interesting that they have this enormous you know, presence and, and success in certain states, whereas in other states, there is, they, they don't really register. So let's move on to the level of the individual states. And as you said, Aurel, we, of course, have to start with um, Uttar Pradesh, a state with an electorate the size of Brazil, no? I mean, this is electorally the most important state in India. It's often said the road to Delhi runs via Lucknow. It's also, as you said, a crucial state for the BJP, a state that's been governed now for five years by a hardline Hindutva chief minister, Yogi Adityanath. Guru Samuelson, this was a comfortable win for the BJP in UP this time too. More than 40% of the popular vote and a comfortable majority in, in the state assembly. Yogi and the BJP, they must be very happy. Yes, they must be. And that's been clear in the images that we've seen from celebrations as well. Now, the significance of this victory is profound, as you've said, both for UP and also for India. Due to its size, UP is seen perhaps as the, the most important of these states in terms of predicating where the nation will be heading also in 2024. And it is also remarkably the first time in 37 years that an incumbent chief minister has been re-elected in UP. And I think also the situation in the state has been comparable to the political situation on the national level in the sense that there were really just two questions that we asked ourselves ahead of the election. The first was how happy or how disgruntled are people actually with the Yogi Adityanath government? And the second question was, if not the Yogi Modi combined, then who? So despite the fact that Priyanka Vadra Gandhi led an active campaign, the Congress party is not really a serious contender in UP politics anymore. So the opposition had to come from the two regional parties, the um, Samajwadi party and the Bahujan Samaj party, which are both products of the democratic deepening of the 1980s and 90s and represent so-called lower caste or endowed segments of the population, respectively. As the campaign evolved, the election was largely framed as a two-party contest between the alliance stitched together by Samajwadi Party leader Akhilesh Yadav on the one hand and the incumbent BJP on the other. So first, Yadav was able to build an electoral alliance with several minor parties, 
And then in February, several leaders of the BJP, along with a number of MLAs, crossed over to the Samajwadi party. And this kind of defection is often a, a sign of, of change in the direction of the political wind in UP. So it gave additional fuel to the idea that, that Akhilesh Yadav would be capable of challenging the election machinery of the BJP. And now we have the answer. The Samajwadi party strategy worked, and as far as it was able to garner almost all of the anti-BJP vote, but this was far from enough to actually challenge the BJP. So it worked, but it didn't work well enough to put it to put it that way. I mean, I'd like to just ask you to say a little bit more about this, because there has been a lot of controversy in Yogi's first five years in office. Communal polarization, often confrontational rhetoric, a good deal of vigilantism as well, and, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, some would also claim a good track record on law and order, for example. How do we explain his re-election, his ability to fend off the challenge from the Samajwadi party? Well, as you say, Kenneth, Yogi Adityanath has been an extremely polarizing political figure since he was installed in, in 2017. And really the overarching, the sky, so to say, under which this election has been fought has been Hindu-Muslim communal relations. We've had numerous instances of hate speech, genocide calls from Swami Narasinghanand and other Hindu extremists, and the normalization, really, of hate speech against Muslims by various Hindutva organizations or, and outfits, and by BJP legislators, and also by the chief minister himself. And so this is sort of the major topic that has been present in the campaign. And what Yogi Adityanath has talked about has been the need in UP for a damdar sarkar, right? A, a strong and decisive government, which is necessary both in order to ensure development and also to curb crime. So the BJP has portrayed itself as anti-corrupt, which is then, of course, also aimed at both the opposition parties. They've talked about how under the BJP, development is more transparent that there is no sort of face value or favoring of specific communities in terms of handing out or development benefits in villages and so on. Development electricity to every poor household and to every village has been one of their messages. And also, this has gone hand in hand with this anti-mafia, anti-crime rhetoric. The infamous mafia bosses of UP are now scared Right? And at the tail end of the campaign, we saw this emergence of the bulldozer as a quite curious symbol. It was used in BJP rallies and speeches and also in their celebrations yesterday. It's a symbol that combines the developmental vision of the party, which is a sort of Gujarat model of development, now also in UP, with its stance of being absolutely ruthless in dealing with mafias and so-called criminal elements. A last question I, I want to pose to you about the, the UP elections here concerns, of course, the, the Bahujan Samaj party. When the votes were being counted, I, I saw newspaper headlines very early on in the day asking, is this the end of the road for the BSP? Some years ago, we spoke about Mayawati as a potential Indian prime minister one day. This time round, her party got roughly 13% of the votes in her home state, her bastion, and I think just a single seat in the state assembly. And this actually came in the wake of what many people saw as a 
quite uninspired and very lackluster campaign from her party and, and her party activists. Is this the end of the road for Mayawati and the BSP? I would say it looks very much like the end of the road. There has been rife speculation, of course, about the reasons why the BSP has been so unactive. And also these counterclaims that the party would emerge as the dark horse but because they don't rely on traditional media. And so, you know, that there was this idea that there was an actual mobilization going on that sort of media and liberal commentators didn't pick up on. But we heard that claim being made in 2017 as well. And then it turned out to hold little truth. It bagged 21% of the vote and won 19 seats. And now in 22, we see further worsening or even collapse of the party. And I would like to say quickly two explanations. I think first, the BSP has never been electorally successful except for when it has been either part of coalitions or it has forged solid alliances with communities outside of its core constituency of the Dalits and the Jatav caste. And that coalition making has been a problem in the party, dealing with this sort of uh, retaining its assertive Dalit core while catering to other communities as well. And I think secondly, that there is a generational divide. In 2013 and 14, while parents of the BSP families were really still loyal to the party, the youth voted for Modi because they felt that he was the one who spoke really to their hopes and aspirations. So let's move on to the neighboring state of uh, Uttarakhand, which has also been BJP territory since uh, 2017. This time it was expected to be a closely contested election, both early opinion polls, but also the exit polls suggested that the Congress and the BJP would be almost neck and neck with an almost equal vote share. At the same time, the campaign showed that the Congress continued to be home to intense infighting, even backstabbing and betrayal within different factions, all trying to establish supremacy within the party. Rahul Ranjan, in the end, the BJP won comfortably in Uttarakhand too. Thanks, Kenneth, for having me. Yeah, it's interesting because the broader mood of the election campaign when it started, it started in the background of, you know, Congress-led opposition hurling attacks on BJP for being incumbent because they've had three chief ministers within one period of of the election. Uh, So it was understood that the larger political campaign will allow Congress to gain grounds against BJP. And we've also seen how new parties such as AAP uh, has made its entry into the political foray by using, I think, one of the only parties that used Terry Dam compensation as a way to make an um, you know affective appeal to people in the state. But the results are out and the fact is that BJP has won 44%, uh, which is close to 47 seat, and Congress has won 38%, which is 19 seats. We do see that there is a fall in the number of seats that the BJP has won in the state. So in the prior election, they have had 57 seats out of 70, and the Congress had 11. So there's a marginal gap between both elections. However, BGP has managed to win the election again. And there are several factors to this. Uh, this is a state, this is a newly formed state. So it was in 2000 that Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh and Uttarakhand was formed. And it's also the state in India that has a major concentration of India's uphill. 
so it's led by different internal logic of vote campaigning but there are two things i would say to the election that sort of stand out on one level bjp's victory suggest almost an unprecedented level of women voters who have turned up to vote uh, in this election so in fact women voters have outnumbered male voters in 38 out of 70 seats across the state including the ones in in the hills and the second is that bjp was able to strategize the political campaigning across the state in much more mainstreamed way than the congress did during the election Some of India's smaller states have also elected their new assemblies, and this includes the smallest state of the Indian Union uh, with just over a million voters, which by Indian standards is almost nothing, namely the state of Goa. I guess some might say that this would make Goa an insignificant state in the bigger scheme of things, but I think that in a, in a sense we can see the Goa elections as a kind of microcosm of Indian politics at large at this conjuncture, at least from from the opposition's point of view. During the campaign in Goa this time I think the mood was such that the opposition felt that they actually had a chance of ousting the BJP from power. This was the first state election since the death of Manohar Parikar who was undoubtedly the tallest political leader in in Goa's recent political history, a chief minister on many occasions. Now his successor as chief minister Pramod Savant did not enjoy the same stature and respect across party lines that Padika used to have. And we could add to this relatively strong sense of anti-incumbency and the BJP looked to be on a weak wicket before this election. And yet as the counting commenced it turned out they backed 20 seats out of the 40 the assembly contesting on their own with no alliance partners. even though they managed only roughly one third of the votes in the state. And of course, the explanation for this translation of one third of the votes into a majority in the assembly lies in the fragmentation of the opposition. We had many opposition parties in different alliances, one with the Congress and the Goa Forward Party, a regional party with a presence in, in a few select seats. In combination, this alliance managed 11 seats. There was another opposition alliance comprising another regional party the Mahashtrawadi Gumantak party in alliance with the Trinamool Congress who had entered Goa in the fall of 2021 led almost entirely by Prashant Kishore's uh, IPAC This alliance uh, managed two seats in spite of getting around 13% of the votes and then there was the Aam Aadmi party who'd been around in Goa for a while now winning two seats this time around Now all parties in this opposition could agree on the need for ousting the BJP from power after it had had two full terms in office but they couldn't agree on how and they couldn't agree on under whose leadership this alliance should be carried forward. So in spite of roughly 45% of all Goan voters voting for one of these parties in these two alliances wanting to dislodge the BJP this didn't happen. And I think this perhaps more or less shows us the national political situation in in a nutshell or in a microcosm. A fragmented opposition unable to find solid common ground and common cause, thereby enabling the BJP to dominate politically with only around one third of the popular vote. There's another big story to the Goan elections, which we unfortunately don't have time for here, and that's the impact. of the revolutionary Goans party a party fighting for 
the existence of Goans in their own motherland, to quote from their program. They managed this time only one seat. I think they won this seat with just 75 votes. So it's a very narrow win, but they managed one seat. But what they also managed was a very good performance in many of the other constituencies where they ran. They didn't run in all of them, but where they did field candidates, they performed unexpectedly well. And this came after a campaign where they managed, I think, to energize many voters, particularly many young voters, in a way that many of the more established parties haven't been able to do for a while. But that's quite another story and maybe something we can return to in, uh, in another episode. Another small state that voted this time around also was Manipur. Now, politics in India's northeast is immensely complex and in many ways animated by political logics that differ from, from the ones that one can encounter in, in other parts of India. It's also a part of India where the BJP used to be a non-entity or at least a very small player, but where it's made rapid inroads over the last few years was part of the incumbent government in Manipur in coalition with local parties. This time, it's the single largest party with more than 37% of the popular vote, and it has a majority in the assembly on its own. Edward Moonlittle, what are we to make of this outstanding performance by the PJP this time around? Ah, thank you, Kenneth. It's a big result. It's a tremendous win. The BJP went into the election very confident. They didn't have pre-poll alliances after forming the government in coalition before. So they went in on their own and they've won 32 out of the 60 seats. It's a big, big win. For a long time, this was a Congress state, successive chief ministers, and Biran Singh has managed to retain it and proved a very popular chief minister. On the local parties, it's also good news for the Nagas People's Front, who represent communities identified as Nagas. This includes the Tangle community, the Rongmai, the Kabui, the Mao community. It's also quite a good election for the National People's Party, a regional party in northeast India based out of Meghalaya, who formed the coalition with the BJP last time around. They managed to kind of stay strong and have become the opposition with the most seats in Manipur. And it has been a disaster for Congress. Really, you know, there are serious questions about what next for Congress in Manipur. So we've gone from 2017, where Congress won the vote, but were not able to form the government. They had more people elected than the BJP. In 2012, they had 42 out of the 60 seats, and now they're in single digits. So it's a disaster for Congress no one is sure what is next to them in Manipur. And Manipur's been able, the BJP in Manipur have been able to do very well with upland tribal Christian voters, a phenomena explained well in Arctum Longkuma's work on Hindutva in Northeast India. They've also managed to do very well with the constituency I worked with, who are people who are brought up as Hindus and have chosen now to identify themselves as non-Hindus as following the traditional Meti religion is they see as the religion of the dominant community in the Valley of Manipur. So the BJP have been able to appeal to these people who identify as leaving Hindu. They've been able to uh, do really well with communities that are Christian. Um, so it's been a big success for them. The election has also been seen as more violent than the previous election in 2017. And there are many accusations about poll captures by militant groups 
in the constituencies in the hills. So those will remain controversial electoral decisions for quite a while afterwards. So we're reaching the end of the road of this tour de force of the five recent state elections in India. Let's let's move to the last and final of the five states, the Punjab. Shreya Sinha, the, the incumbent Congress party government has been a house divided for quite some time. Factional rivalries, defections, new parties being formed out of the Congress. The Congress did poorly, as perhaps was expected. But the big news in this election is undoubtedly the landslide victory of the Arm Army Party, winning a clear majority of seats on its own. What brought the Arm Army Party to power this time? I mean, this is absolutely unprecedented. At 92 out of 117 seats, ARP has basically won more than three-fourths of all the seats. And this is not just unprecedented for ARP, it's also unprecedented for state elections in Punjab more generally. And what ARP really benefited from was the complete disillusionment with the two traditional parties and a very clear messaging that people must give uh, one chance to this new party. And so uh, there was a lot of, you know, messaging around the Delhi model and what it achieved with the, you know, reduction of electricity bills with, you know, primary healthcare centers and so on. And also what worked in its favor, especially towards the end, was that uh, the Congress, the Akalis, even the BJP, they appeared to be pulling out all stops to prevent AAP from winning. So they were kind of taking pot shots on Bhagwan Man's character, who's now going to become the chief minister, you know, just days before the election, they started calling Kejriwal a terrorist. And so it kind of reeked of this uh, sort of desperation and hostility. And it was just really at odds with the kind of change that people were looking for. But I don't think this was a foregone conclusion when the campaigning started, to be honest. I mean, of course, state elections in Punjab have, you know, so far been a kind of bipolar contest between the Congress and the Shiromani Akali Dal. Even though in the last state elections in 2017, AAP emerged as the largest opposition party, for much of the five years since then, any party infrastructure was basically dismantled. Uh, There was a lot of disillusionment among its members. I mean, I've personally seen defunct party offices in smaller towns during my field visits. You know, even now the party has fielded several candidates who actually defected from the Congress and the Akali Dal. And... More than that, I think Punjab elections are uh, such that the votes are sort of, you know, there are three different regions. So there is the southern uh, belt, which is the Malwa, which is the largest. And then there's the Majha in the northwest and then the Duaba in the northeast. And so people were not expecting AAP to do as well outside of the Malwa. And that, you know, was meant to be the key to them being successful in the elections. But you know, lo and behold, it did do very, very well. And the corollary to that is that, you know, this sort of historical majority of the AAP has basically decimated the Congress and the Akalis. And I think this is very important about the elections as well. I mean, it's very striking that all the major leaders have lost the elections. You know, four former chief ministers have lost the election, both the Badal's Badal Senior and Sukhbir Badal have lost. Bikram Singh Majit has lost. Captain Amrinder Singh, King of Patiala, has lost from Patiala. Navjot Singh Sidhu has lost. This is quite phenomenal. And actually, Congress need not have done so badly. Uh, they really squandered their chances because they couldn't control the infighting. They changed the CM three months before elections. 
and even the appointment of you know a dalit face as the chief minister in the last few months it didn't yield the desired results and there were some ground reports that it alienated the dominant jats from the party and then of course there's the akalis who have been reduced to all of four seats even though they were you know they they are so strong at the panchayat level at least they were they have been known to be uh, they control the sikh gurdwaras they have a lot of resources and so the real thing is that you know the old sort of hegemonies have been disrupted in the state and we need to see what comes out of this and what and how ab delivers against the promises it has made an exciting conjuncture in punjabi politics this uh, landslide winner of the aam aadmi party there's another component or another aspect to this election i'd like to hear your views on farmers from the punjab they played key roles in the massive uh, farm law protests that we've uh, that we saw in india from late 2020 until late 2021 a movement that was targeting the modi government and its new liberal policies in agriculture to what extent has the, this farm law movement been important in shaping electoral outcomes in the punjab this time i mean i know for example that that some of the farm unions and some of the movement leaders ventured into politics also standing for elections Yeah I mean I think everybody expected the farm movement of course to have a big you know impact on the elections but I think the real way in which the protest shaped the elections is that it it kind of really brought out the discontent against the existing political parties and these traditional parties you know in Punjab Congress and the Akali Dal and I think this is what also the AAP really gained from and it you know this kind of disillusionment led some farmer leaders to fight elections but they really did not stand the chance i mean they were recognized as a party you know the samyukt samaj morcha some of the farmer leaders made this platform they were recognized as a political party only in the last minute they did not have a symbol most of the candidates were fighting well all the candidates were fighting as independent candidates and they didn't get support from the other farm unions you know in terms of any kind of electoral support and even voters on the ground were sort of differentiating between their participation in the protest and you know support for these leaders as a uh, you know political leaders and so many farmers thought that the protests were only about farmer issues but people in power people in legislative uh, positions need to have a wider agenda that the farmer leaders didn't have so you know it's not surprising that they did not see much success in the elections and you know because the farmer protests were really good at mobilizing and kind of bringing to the fore the shortcomings of the congress and the akali dals and how they had failed the farmers and the farming interests over several years uh, this obviously worked against them and in the, in favor of aap but i do want to remind the readers about uh, the not the readers i want to remind the listeners about one thing which is that you know aap in delhi was the first state government to notify one of the new farm laws when they were introduced back in december 2020 so if the central government reintroduces the new farm laws you know it would be worth keeping an eye out for what the aap government in punjab will do about them interesting Arild Root, let's zoom out from the individual states and back to the big picture of these elections. At a press conference a few days before the counting of the votes began, Amit Shah held a press conference where he said that the BJP would form the government in four states and improve their performance in the Punjab. 
he also said that these assembly polls had shown that Modi was the most popular prime minister the country had ever seen, and that this had directly benefited the party in these elections. So what he was doing here was attributing this anticipated uh, stellar performance of the BJP directly uh, to Modi's leadership and Modi's popularity. And they did it. They won four states, forming governments, even in the Punjab. Their vote share went up a little bit. Modi and the BJP now arguably confidently looking forward to 2024, or? Oh, definitely. I mean, I must say Amit Shah is a wonderful, you know, if you agree with him, political organizer, and he really has a good sense of what's happening in the country. So he's worth listening to, even if you don't agree with him. One of the things that we haven't spoken about, but I think which is really interesting, is that what to many has appeared as a pretty chaotic and incompetent few years of rule from the central government and from Modi's premiership hasn't really registered, hasn't affected the vote support. There's, you mentioned the farmers' movement, which was a big thing. A lot of farmers were very dissatisfied for months and months on end. They protested in Delhi. There was a few people who died. There's this incident with the, the minister's car or the, the son. That's one thing. Demonetization a few years back, the conflict with China, which hasn't really been resolved and certainly not you know, in any way that would give you the impression that Modi is really the defender of, of Indian interests. And of course, the terrible handling of the pandemic with bodies being burnt en masse along the Ganges and in the crematorial grounds in Delhi and elsewhere. A lot of people walking miles and miles and miles out of Delhi because he shut the whole country down with four hours notice. I mean, all these things are terrible governance disasters. They don't seem to matter. They don't seem to matter. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? And uh, votes are pretty happy with him, which is why I think that Amit Shah and the whole BJP, Narendra Modi, Yogi Adityanath, I mean, it's not about it's not about governance, right? It is partly about governance, but it is about something else. It's a big cultural project. The RSS, uh, big, uh, and the whole family of organizations behind the BJP, are into a cultural project of transforming India into a Hindu state. And that registers with a lot of voters. That's a popular project, a national project that a lot of people vote for. Yogi Adityanath, I don't see him really as the next prime minister, but it certainly is an, it's an interesting proposition that's come up. And a lot of people do seem to think that he would be a great next prime minister after Modi. And he is a Hindu saint. You know, he's a holy man. He wears, I mean, he's more Gandhi than Gandhi in a sense, more religious than Gandhi. So that's really interesting. And where this whole thing is going to take India, who knows? But I really think that we're looking at a, a next period with Modi. Of course, one thing, that we also spoke about here today, which I think is really interesting, is that you know he, he or BJP gets just less than fifty percent of the vote, between forty and fifty percent of the vote in in the bigger states, and in some states much less. Right, nationally, 
Modi, BJP never got, you know, they're not 50%. They have this massive support in parliament, the presence in parliament because of the electoral system. But the problem is that the whole opposition is fragmented, right? So you have AAP now in Delhi and Punjab, you have Trinamul in West Bengal, etc. So the opposition is divided and Congress is weak. Congress is terribly weak. They put in Priyanka Gandhi as sort of the next Indira Gandhi who would sort of salvage the party. It didn't work. It didn't work. So the family cannot pull it together. There doesn't seem to be any alternative within the family. So for the moment, the opposition is too fragmented and weak to present an alternative to BJP. Ariel Root, Guru Samuelson, Edward Moon Little, Rahul Ranjan, and Shreya Sinha, once more, thank you for guiding us through these elections and their broader implications. My name is Kenneth Bonilson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.